Welcome to You, Me and from Football Whispers, the nostalgic podcast which thought things were better in the 90s. Each week we take a trip back in time to remember an iconic player of that decade. My name's Tom Bedell and this week I'm joined by freelance football writer, podcaster and Leeds United supporter John McKenzie to discuss some particularly happy times for the mighty whites. John, how are you? Thanks for joining us. Yeah, lovely. It's a lovely, warm, sunny day up here in the north of England. So uh, what better to do on a warm, sunny day than talk about better times for Leeds United? (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, Plenty of fine players have donned Leeds' famous white jersey in the 90s. But today we're focusing on one half of United's famous Australian duo, Harry Kuehl. John, when I say the name Harry Kuehl, what's your immediate reaction? What does that kind of stir up within you? Yeah, it's really, really fascinating, actually. And I've really enjoyed thinking about Harry Kuehl over the last few days since you, since you asked me to come on the show. Because he's he's quite a complex character, I think, for especially for Leeds fans. And I don't want to uh, premise anything that we're going to talk about later on in the show but um really really fascinating player who, who came through as a youth player so there's that element to him you, you'd expect Leeds fans to to really hold him quite dear in their hearts given that he came over as a, as a kid from Australia and, and worked his way through the youth system and really broke into the the side and was just really important for us at, at probably the best period of, of our of our recent history um discounting the last couple of years um but there's obviously the, the a few just niggling things that have have meant that he's no longer really regarded by a lot of Leeds fans Um, just doesn't come to mind a huge amount so uh, obviously the fact that he leaves to go to Liverpool at a point where we go into sort of financial decline and it feels as though we really have him stolen from us Uh, and then later on he moves to Galatasaray where as we'll talk about there's there's, um, some negative history with Leeds and Leeds fans Um, and I think a lot of Leeds fans saw that as a great betrayal so yeah, thinking about Kuehl, it, it, I'm I'm just amazed at how uh, mixed my reaction is. Actually, um, I, again, it probably comes down to a little bit to, to his personality too. I don't think he, he never someone who never really struck me as having a as, as a really sort of effervescent personality, but on the field, just a, such a great player. And so you have those those balances there as well. So yeah, my immediate reaction is quite mixed. Um, positivity and 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 also not negativity but maybe maybe not quite caring as much as I thought I might do. <laughs> well born in Sydney to an English father and an Anglo-Australian mother he grew up supporting Liverpool and played in the New South Wales Youth League representing the under 13, 14, 15 Marconi Stallions teams and notable alumni of those sides include Christian Vieri, Mark Schwartz, another Leeds player, of course, Paul Oaken. It was with the Marconi Stallions that he first came to England, as well as touring Thailand and Italy. He was, and he was eventually invited to undergo a trial at Leeds as a 15-year-old as part of Australia's Big Brother movement, which was a youth migration programme run by a non-profit organisation based in Sydney, aiming to bring youths from Britain to Australia. Obviously, this worked in the opposite way, as it turned out. What stage were Leeds fans kind of first aware of Kewl? I suspect Australian kids coming to England in the 90s and, and premiership football at the time wasn't common. Was was there any sort of buzz or hype around him or as a youngster more so than other youth prospects? Or how how aware were you of him at that point? Yeah, I think it's it's an interesting period of history because I, th- I think in the, the sort of the end of the 90s is, is when football fandom sort of really starts booming in the sense that you, um, you can start fanatically following your side you can have a much better sense of of who's in the youth side of of what's going on behind the scenes it's no longer just finding out what happened to your club on the on the weekends um by reading the paper or watching match of the day um there's a lot more exposure to to these sorts of things and i think for us certainly the 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 hype around the youth um, side at this time was was quite big. There was a uh, an FA Youth Cup win uh, in '97 um, that that was really quite important for Leeds fans. I think because there's a lot of players in that team, and I'm sure we're going to talk about it. But a lot of players on that team who then went on to have uh, impressive footballing careers in their own right. And 
so for me, I don't think I don't have any specific recollections of Kewl necessarily, but I do have a, a recollection of, a, of an era where we were excited about the youth players coming through, um, and I think that's a that's something that's stayed with Leeds fans to this day. There's there's still a lot of faith that because of that team, uh, particularly the O'Leary team later on, that that we could dip into our youth um, academy and and really pick out some some gems. So I don't think I was aware of Kewl. Um, individually necessarily until he started coming through into the the senior team um so around around 96 97 so um yeah it was a really exciting time to be a Leeds fan simply because we had the those uh, youth teams that were, were so exciting well let's talk about the youth team as you mentioned uh, uh, quite an important team just some of the names Paul Robinson Alan Mabry who maybe didn't play so much at Leeds but went on to have a good career Jonathan Woodgate Stephen McPhail and Alan Smith, who was actually on the bench for the FA Youth Cup win, uh, final win, that is in 96-97 against Crystal Palace. Uh, of the, kind of every team, I suppose, every club is, uh, you know, supporters want to see homegrown players and, and Leeds, I'm sure, are no different. But what was the significance of that team that Kuehl was, of course, part of playing number five his jersey at the time yeah it's, it's funny you mentioned all those names but one of the, <laughs> I was thinking about this the other day one of the players I was really excited about was a goalkeeper called Nicky Byrne who uh, ended up singing in, in Westlife so um, yeah the, that, that's a, another blast from the past that was uh, just I was reminded of as I was preparing for this but yeah just a, an incredible team and um, there's so few um teams where you see that kind of um, level of success from from a youth side it's it's so difficult to to plot anyone's development in in professional football from youth to to senior levels and uh, just the number of names that you read out there just an incredible group of of, of players um, and and obviously that really comes into the fore when when we talk about David O'Leary because David O'Leary was was willing to sort of take those players and uh, and and bring them into the side uh, and Kiel was at the forefront of that Kiel was uh, I think the head of all of these players in terms of his um, his um, s- slow um, f- movement into the into the senior squad, um, and yeah, I, I suppose one of the things I find so interesting about Kuehl is that I think he always looked quite youthful, um, and he was because he was ahead of these guys. I just I always sort of thought of him as as being as being quite old from the beginning. Um, but it's incredible to forget just how young he was when he broke through into the senior squad. Um, and he's he's a first-team regular by 97-98, uh, and a lot of the, these other guys didn't really break in until the following season. Um, so a real testament to to his ability and his talent to, to be able to to come into the, the, the team well in advance of the, of the others in that youth um, cup squad. Yeah, certainly so. In a time, I think, when... Young players were probably held back slightly longer than they are today. Kiel made his first team debut in a 1-0 home defeat to Middlesbrough in March 96. What were the kind of first impressions, if not in that game, around that time when he was first breaking into the the matchday squad and and getting cameos? Yeah, I I don't have any recollection of his debut, I must admit. Um, I started really following Leeds properly um, probably the season after, um, so 97, 98, which is really the season when, when Kuehl came through. And he doesn't have a huge amount of uh, appearances until that season. Um, I think he has maybe two or three um, before, yeah, 97, 98, when he, when he has a, um, a fairly sizable um, chunk of games in, in, in the league, he plays 29 games in the league. Um, and it's, yeah, it's an interesting one because trying to think of just Kuehl as a as a player is is quite fascinating because I think, um, and we'll talk about this again in in, in the next few minutes. But um, he's always thought of as a, as a winger, and in the last couple of days, I've watched through. Um, about four or five of Leeds's um, season reviews from that period, just to get a sense of of some of his highlights. Now, obviously, the majority of those highlights are goals, um, and so you don't really get a, a really full sense of, of what a player was like. But I was surprised at how flexible he was as a player. He didn't feel to me like a winger. Um, there's examples of him cutting inside, uh, coming quite central, uh, and attacking in that way. He was a ball carrier. He was a good header of the ball, um, and so you get um, you see him coming in the back post and. And, and finding uh, often quite booming headers into into the goal. He's good with both feet. Um, his ball control was was incredible. Um, and 
I think part of the reason maybe why we, we think of him as a, as a winger is simply the way that football was at the time is that if anyone was particularly good with the ball at the feet, you you just gen, generally tended to put them out in wide areas and try and get them to cross the ball in. Um, and I think one of the fascinating things about Kewell's legacy is, is possibly that he was playing football at a time when football itself was going through a huge tactical upheavals. Um, and I wonder whether or not had he played later on, um, even by four or five years, whether or not he would have actually played more centrally as a, as a 10. Um, but yeah, all of these things were evident um, in, in the early days. And uh, that first season, like I said, in 97, 98, which is when I started watching football, was when he came to the fore. And it, it's, um, it was really uh, incredibly impressive stuff because even just watching through those season reviews for his time at Leeds, um, it's, it's not that you see him necessarily improving through that time. Um, I think he does he does get better, obviously, with, with the development. But even in that early season in 97-98, it's just incredible how mature a player he is at that point. Um, and I think what actually changes, the reason he becomes more important is because the team is slowly built around uh, him or, or different players. And, and depending on the dynamics of those teams, uh, it depends on how, how well he shines through them. So, yeah, even at a very early age, um, a huge amount of, uh, of um, talent on show. It's interesting what you say there, John, about his kind of position and how had he been maybe a generation later, it would have been viewed differently. Because I think from my own research, when he played at Galatasaray sort of 10 plus years later, he kind of played off the the main striker as a sort of second striker. So perhaps uh, you know you would you were quite you were quite close to the money there. That season as a whole, you mentioned ninety seven, ninety eight, real sort of breakthrough scores his first goal for the club in a League Cup win over Stoke City, and very much you know involved in the squad on a weekly basis by that point. What do you firstly remember of that season and 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 Kiel's in part of it, and also. What's, was there kind of any excitement around the fact that there was a young Australian playing his part in what was predominantly still a kind of British and Irish league, uh, the Premiership in its kind of fledgling years? Yeah, I think, you know, this is a period of the Premier League when, as you say, it's a, it's very much homegrown talent and and there's a sort of, uh, and I use the word advisedly, exoticism to these sorts of players, you know, where, where, where the fans are going to... They're going to take a, a, a player from Australia and sort of hold them up uh, as, as as something of, a, of of an oddity, and um, I, I certainly think there was an element of that to the to the way that we we um, saw Kuehl. Um and obviously starts off that whole legacy that Leeds have of of a stream of Australian players, and you mentioned some of them later, but around this sort of time as well, there was um, there was Jamie McMaster as well, who was a young Australian who um, I think I, I I latched on him quite. Uh, quite soon on when I read this question in the running order because um, I didn't really have that experience with Kuehl because Kuehl was there pretty much when I started following Leeds and McMaster was there a couple of seasons later as a youth player and was heralded as this great you know uh, saviour for 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 coming through the youth squad as well and he just never really just never really materialised and I'm sure the same was was true of Kuehl that we had that sort of excitement and it just so happened that he he turned out well but that that season was just yeah, really quite an incredible um, uh, thing to behold. He's, uh, if anyone who's listening to this hasn't had the chance, it's well worth watching some uh, replays of, of what Kuehl does because he's just such a versatile player. Um, he, As I've said already, he's strong with both feet. He scores rasping shots from outside the area. He scores tap-ins. He was absolutely brilliant one-on-one um, at a period when... I don't think the majority of players were one-on-one on one specialists. I think nowadays most professional footballers would, at least in an attacking sense, would be fairly um, good one-on-one. But he was just, um, I think, next level. Um, and a, a sort of a exciting sort of player that you associated with with those players who came from the continent. So players like King Kladze or, or David Ginola, um, players like that. Um, and and he was, yeah, he's coming through and doing it at the, at the age that he was, 17, 18. Um, so, yeah, all very exciting stuff well we'll take a very short break there and then we'll be back in the next part to talk about Kuehl as a Leeds regular and how things progressed through the 90s don't go anywhere
Well, welcome back to you, me, and today we're talking about former Leeds United attacker Harry Kuhn. I'm joined by John McKenzie, freelance football writer and journalist. At the part, at the point that we left it, we were talking about a very young Harry Kuhn in the mid to late 90s, breaking into the first team at Ellen Road. And in 97-98, he made 35 appearances in all competitions, scoring eight and assisting five. The following season, Leeds hit the top of the Premiership for the first time in their history, but things all started to unravel, perhaps, when George Graham left to take over from Christian Gross at Tottenham. After finishing fifth the previous season, John, were there fears that this would kind of derail Leeds or... What was the kind of feeling around Ellen Road at that time? Yeah, it's an interesting period of their history because you remember, obviously, Leeds win the old first division in 1991-92, uh, just before it becomes the Premier League, and that's with Howard, uh, Howard Wilkinson. Um, and Howard Wilkinson is obviously eventually replaced by um, George Graham. George Graham isn't there for very long. Wilkinson sacked at the beginning of the, the 96-97 season um, and Graham joins uh, I think in September of 96 um, and has eventually sort of two fullish seasons. But 97-98 uh, is, the, is the, the only full season that Graham has uh, at, um, at Leeds. And I think that you're, you're still thinking in that 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 sort of old-fashioned way, perhaps, of of having legacy managers who are going to be there for a while, and um, you, you sort of have that expectation, especially at Leeds, where they've had managers like Revy and Wilkinson, who who have whose long periods have been sort of synonymous synonymous with success. Um, and I think there's that feeling there that you know Wilkinson had dropped off a little bit. He had a poor start to the uh, 96-97 season. Um, including, I think, a 4-0 drubbing of Man United, which is always going to get everyone a little bit worried at Elland Road. Um, and then, yeah, George Graham comes in and seems to get Leeds on a fairly solid footing, fifth in the in the Premier League again, which is where I think the Leeds fans would expect. We'd had a couple of fifth-place finishes uh, in the mid-90s. And him going, and then there being uncertainty about who is going to come in. I think Martin O'Neill was, was being considered for a while, but in the end... When O'Leary comes in, I think there's obviously a lot of trepidation about how the whole thing was going to turn out. So it was certainly um, a, a, a fairly tetchy period in, in Leeds United's history. Um, obviously, we, knew, we know how it turned out, but certainly at the time, it didn't feel quite so uh, comfortable as it maybe uh, should have done. Well, you've led me on perfectly there because I was going to say, obviously, with the, the full context of history... Uh, we know that things did work out. It was David O'Leary, of course, Graham's assistant at the time, who took over the managerial reins, and Harry Kuehl was one of the many beneficiaries. How important was David O'Leary in, in that period in Leeds United's history, and particularly for the youngsters like Kuehl? Yeah, I think he was hugely, hugely important. And David O'Leary just a fascinating individual because here's someone who just turns up as as, as Graham's assistant manager and first team coach at Leeds and stays on to be the manager and then really doesn't have much of a history after that um, and uh, it's sort of again one of the forgotten men of, of Leeds's, Leeds's recent um, past uh, but yeah, incredible. And and again, watching through these season reviews of of, of Leeds at the time, I think O'Leary. What what O'Leary did was he gave he gave youth a chance, but he he also developed a system in which a lot of these youth players were given a freedom to express themselves. And after having had George Graham. Um, who I, I I don't think was quite so um, uh, laissez-faire in his approach. It was it was really quite fun watching the watching those early seasons under O'Leary back. And uh, we're going to talk later on about the the sort of famous lead side, the, the lead side that gets to the semi-finals of the Champions League. But actually, I kind of feel as though this early 96, 97, uh, 97, 98, um, uh, sorry, 97, 98 onwards was under O'Leary was just really quite a fun. Um, period for for Leeds, and I, I actually think it was maybe more fun than than that later team uh, that has Woodgate, Ferdinand, uh, Viduka, Smith in it. Um, so I think it was it was really important for for them, and uh, just the the ability to bring through those youngsters and those youngsters to come out and be allowed to be as confident as they were in terms of their playing style. Yeah, it was really. Um, really important and uh, I, I always kind of wonder why it was that when O'Leary left he just never quite had 
the same career that he'd had at Leeds because if you look at what he actually produces in his time there, um, there's just just a lot. Of, I mean, fourth in the Premier League, third in the Premier League, fourth, fifth, uh, and then obviously the the poor season which sort of precipitated their downfall. But that really quite an impressive um, turn of events for a for a guy who whose main job first main job was at one of the biggest clubs in the country. Yeah, rather remarkable as you say after. Aston Villa was it that followed Leeds he didn't you know just it never really worked out for him after that at all didn't he kind of slipped away as quickly as he arrived on the managerial scene 98-99 uh, then Kuehl made 49 appearances scored 9 and assisted 10 and you can obviously see quite an important part of the side excuse me how how important was he how significant was he in, at Leeds and as a kind of one of the stars, I suppose, burgeoning kind of stars of the Premiership. I've already mentioned the differences between um, George Graham's team to, to David O'Leary's team, and there's certainly what I've already mentioned there that in the in the early O'Leary team, which is the, the sort of tactical flexibility that Kewell has allowed. You see him popping up on the left most of the time, but he does appear on the on the right. He does come through the middle, um, and at this at this time as well, he's got that um, uh, relationship with. Um, Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank, which I think is really a really important one for him, um, and yeah, that that team was just so creative, so so dangerous. It just seemed they, the 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 players that they had seemed so um, just so efficient in many respects. You had Lee Boyer in in central midfield as well, who just seemed to be able to score. Um, uncharacteristically like I want to say dirty shots he never seemed to strike the ball cleanly but it always just seemed to go in um and you just had that perfect mixture of all those 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 three and I think in terms of his development as a as a player it, it, it he was a very very tactically flexible player I think and a lot of the the I've mentioned this already but a lot of the times when I'm watching him back I feel as though he ebbs and flows given the players who are around him so um I think in the season where Michael Bridges is brought in, for example, um, which is the season that that is held up as being his probably his best one, certainly in terms of production, um, I think there's a certain extent to which the fact that Michael Bridges was in that side and played in the way that he played that actually brought the best out of Kuehl as well. Um, so... Yeah, there's there's so many different combinations of things in terms of what the man what managers are there, what what team they're playing, um, Kewell's age itself, um, and and how football is developing. That means that that actually each one of those um, seasons just gives you a different sort of snapshot of of where Kewell's at, where Leeds are at, where O'Leary's at, and where English football's at. Um, so yeah, really fascinating stuff. Has he changed at all as a player? Do you think, John, from when he? kind of broke through a few years prior were you seeing more of a kind of rounding out of his game or was he still very much sort of true to the the kind of player he was to begin with what you see in in him that changes is is um, maybe a maturity and a confidence um, I think that you you see a lot of the flashes of what he's about early on but as time goes by I think he he um, he, he sort of matures into a player who is a lot happier to sort of take games by the scruff of the neck um, and I think that's probably more to do with a maturity thing and a realization that um, that he could do that um, rather than being a youngster who probably felt that he had to sort of toe the line that the, the, the team were taking. Um, but certainly under O'Leary, as I've said, that his his sort of flexibility to be able to come central, his flexibility to sort of move around the the um, the the front the front three, four, or four, depending on where he wanted to position himself, was was really evident and. Um, yeah, there's a, the game. I can't remember which season it was in. I think it must have been, it must have been either ninety eight, ninety nine, or ninety nine, two thousand, where he ends up getting um, Frank Leboeuf sent off against uh, when the Leeds are playing Chelsea, and in quite an important game. And uh, that was simply because he was just so frustrating for Leboeuf to play against, and he was breaking past him on both sides, on left and right. And um, for me, that was that was that there was a sort of. Um, there was, I don't even want to say pomposity, but he just had he he. It was it was almost as though he um, approached the game in in such a way that he had an expectation that things would would come out, and I think and, and things would work out for him um, on the field. And it's not even that you get this idea that he's just being creative or trying to express himself. It's more that he just knew what he had to do and he could do it. And that and that sort of radical efficiency was was really quite uh, important for his game. Um, 
And again, you know, this is, uh, I, I mentioned that sort of history of football, but there's so much space in, in English football at this point in the midfield uh, area um, and in behind the fullbacks that he's really uh, able to, to plunder those. Um, and yeah, it's, I think that's what you, what you see as a player maturing um, rather than necessarily um, changing in, in that respect. We've mentioned it already, but the, the 1990,000 season, he scores 17 in all comps and assists a further 20 by far the best return of his career uh, for goals and assists was this his best season then on the individual level do you think or as you I think sort of hinted at there maybe better in other seasons but the numbers were the most impressive this year yeah I think this was probably his best season from a personal point of view um, and I, I wonder whether or not that again, that's to do with the personnel that Leeds have. I feel like in in future seasons, he, the, the, because there is that influx of youth, um, and um, he does start picking up injuries. Um, I think that this was probably the the real high point. Um, although I don't want to suggest that you know he's he's hitting a peak at this point because I think his first season at Liverpool um, was reflective of that as well. And that's that's really after the first season at Liverpool is when is when something like a decline starts happening. Um, but yeah, it's I, I think this is this is probably this probably would go down as his favourite um, season at, at Leeds. Um, despite the fact that I think that the, maybe the following seasons uh, are the ones that maybe Leeds would describe as being um, better in their in their uh, history. It's hard to overlook, obviously, the achievements that season. You mentioned David O'Leary's record, but the, the probably the standout one is that they reached the UEFA Cup semi-finals, obviously, to be beaten by Galatasaray. We've, we've sort of teased it a bit, but talk to us about that Galatasaray game, set the kind of the scene of that game and its significance and the kind of ramifications for those who aren't aware. Yeah, so the Galatasaray game uh, is the uh, the away leg that is the is the significant one, um, and Leeds go into it needing needing to get a result. Um, but the day before the the game itself is played, um, there's there is some violence that occurs in in Istanbul, which is where Galatasaray's ground is, obviously, um, and the the basically the outcome of that. Um, game is the the after a fight between two sets of supporters two Leeds fans Kevin Spate and Christopher Loftus end up stabbed and ultimately dying as well um, and this I think is really it's a really important turning point in Leeds's um, history um, for, for obvious reasons um, and the, yeah, the reason why the the game is, is so important is that later on Harry Keel does go and play for Galatasaray, which I'm sure we'll talk about in in a little while. But um, yeah, it's one of those it's one of those moments which is uh, completely tragic, but also stands out in in uh, footballers football fans' minds. Sorry, and um, has really become a, a defining moment in in the way that the fans narrate the game. Um, Obviously, Leeds go on to lose that game, which carries on being played despite the the violence. And again, that I think that sort of consolidated its its place in the in the law of Leeds United. So, um, a really difficult uh, um, sort of point in in Leeds' history. And I think maybe he's gone a little bit beneath the radar in terms of the wider um, events of, of or tragedies of, of English football. But um, certainly, first and foremost, in a lot of Leeds United fans' minds, even still. Kiel was sent off in that game as well, from memory, I think, right? One of two players sent off, I think I'm right in saying. Yeah, I think it, 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 it sort of devolved a little bit because obviously there's there's so much tensions anyway um and with the events of the previous evening i think there was there was a sort of frustration amongst the team the players on the team one that the game was being uh played and and two that there didn't seem to be too much concern about it in terms of the the officials as well so really not a very uh, pleasant um situation from start to finish really despite all that and it, it seems kind of churlish to move on but we must uh kill cap the season with a Place in the PFA Team of the Year, PFA Young Player of the Year, and inevitably Leeds' is Player of the Year. The following season, Leeds finished fourth and back in the or in the Champions League, reached the semi-finals where they were beaten by Valencia 3-0 after a goalless first leg at Ellen Road. Talk to us about that side and the kind of significance of that team because not very long after, obviously, we know that things derail spectacularly. And as you, I think, said either off air at the beginning or very early on in one of your answers, you know, it's been hard to enjoy Leeds 
until the last couple of years under Marcelo Bielsa. So presumably that team is quite iconic in Leeds's recent history and probably one of the last that you enjoyed prior to the last couple of seasons. Yeah, it's interesting. As, as I've already alluded to, I, I think maybe I slightly enjoyed the earlier team that Kewell played in. Um, but I think that's very much from a from an enjoyment point of view. Certainly the the European um, adventures of, of this team was was just remarkable remarkable and so fun to follow as a as a fan and I mean if you look at the the route that Leeds take in the Champions League it's just incredible because it was back in the days when there was two group stages and Leeds end up playing I think Real Madrid Barcelona um, Lazio one of the Milans I can't remember which just a huge a huge amount of um, talent that you had to work work your way past in order to get where you are um, and. It was just for, for someone for someone who was following a, a club who who I, I suppose were were sort of narrowly provincial at this point. It was just an eye opening for me. Um, after I think for me the 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 ninety four World Cup, then the ninety eight World Cup particularly, but then the Leeds the Leeds uh, route through through Europe were really quite important for me to to sort of recognise that football was a global game and and that that was for the better. Um, and so yeah, I have a lot of a lot of fond memories and. Uh, particularly at this time of because I was still still fairly young, um, even just staying up and listening on on the radio to to various football matches um, under my covers because uh, I had to make sure that I wasn't being found by my parents. But um, so yeah, I have really really fond memories of games like playing against against teams like Maritimo, uh, little known Portuguese side. Um, but you know it just felt it just felt so much more exciting than. Than playing against Bradford City in the uh, in the in the FA Cup, so yeah, it's it was it was a great time to be a Leeds fan. Where was Kiel's kind of standing in Europe? Do you think against similar players at this point would he have been considered one of the best in his position? Do you think? Or yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I in sort of preparation of this, I mean, I already mentioned that I don't really think of Kiel necessarily as an out and out winger because um, I did start thinking through how would I compare him per position. It's quite, it's quite tough to do, but what I did do is that obviously in two thousand and one. Um, Kewell does get nominated for the Ballon d'Or. Uh, doesn't get any votes in the end, but I just had to look through some of the the list of some of the players um, that were nominated that that time around. And you've obviously Michael Owen wins it, but then you've got players like Raúl, David Beckham, uh, Totti, Figo, Rivaldo, um, Henri Zidane, um, and yeah, Giggs, I suppose down there, Ferdinand, um, and then Kewell is in there amongst them. And this is the sort of that's the sort of level of player that he's being compared to, and I think rightly so. Um, I think perhaps. There is a sense I've mentioned it already that he he um, suffers a little bit by the fact that he he's playing at football at a, at a, in a period or he starts his career in a period where maybe his best position isn't really exploited, and um, uh, I certainly think that had he played more centrally, we'd maybe still be having uh, different. Well, we'd be very much having different conversations about him. But um, when you consider that later on in his career there are uh, approaches from from clubs like Inter Milan, Barcelona, um, that's the sort of that's the sort of level of footballer that he was that was the 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 level that he was at and um uh, it's just I, I for me it, the it's just um the result of his um slow um decline in terms of injuries that that really stopped him from being maybe as successful as as you might expect just finally then for this section did q kind of pave the way for some sort of unofficial link with between leeds and australia you mentioned it earlier but obviously, by this stage, the the turn of the millennium, they had Danny Hay, Jacob Burns in the youth ranks, Kuehl and Viduka in the first team. Was is, it was it coincidence, or was there more more to it? What 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 light can you throw on that for us? No, I certainly think that that was a that was a development route that they they tried to tap into, given that they had Kuehl. I think that the it works both ways, right? If you if you have a player. Uh, of a particular nationality who's doing quite well at your club then you're going to probably find uh, a lot of youth players in that country who would be happy to come over and play for you as well so I think it was a combination of those two that um, that they had found Kuehl, um with with I mean relative ease I think in terms of the fact that this kid was just sort of thrown on their on their doorstep but um, 
I, I think that they thought, look, if we can if we can uh, plunder Australia in terms of uh, youth talent, then uh, we could pull out some some uh, interesting players. But yeah, other than Viduka, I'm really not not convinced that any of the other players that came across from Australia ever really made it at Leeds. So. Uh, no, unfortunately not. Well, we'll leave it there, and then we'll be back after a short break to discuss Kiel's move to Liverpool, and really, I think the decline of Kiel as a real top level player. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to You, Me and Today. I'm joined by Leeds United fan and football writer John McKenzie and we're talking about Harry Kuehl. At the end of the, the 90s but early 2000s, things are obviously kind of changing quite rapidly for Leeds. Regulars in Europe and a string of kind of top four, top five finishes under David O'Leary but the kind of financial realities are beginning to set in and they finish... 15th in the final season that O'Leary oversees, but obviously other managers come and go, Terry Venables and Peter Reid taking charge to varying degrees of success after that. I'm sure this is obviously a very painful period for you, John. Just explain to those who aren't maybe aware what had been happening and, and what kind of preceded Kuehl's move away from Elland Road. Yeah, I mean, Leeds were the, were the original sort of... Uh, loophole football club who are trying to trying to benefit financially from from maybe taking financial shortcuts elsewhere so so much of what Leeds were the route that Leeds were going down was based on the fact that they would get back into the Champions League and for a number of seasons that that worked out but obviously the <clears throat> given that in the um the 2001 season, 2000 uh, and 2001-2 season, that because they don't finish in in, in the Champions League um, spots, they 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 suffer um, obviously some kind of fan, financial uh, drop. But then obviously 2002-2003, there's a 15th place finish in the Premier League, and that's just not enough for them to be able to keep um, going with the finances they have, and that's when the decline really starts. Um, and so yeah, it's a it's a monetary thing. Peter Isdale. The, the chairman had um, just spelt, spent money with Wilder Band and, and it really came to bite them um, after that 15th place finish. It was inevitable then that Kuehl would be among those star assets sold off to raise some much-needed cash. £25 million bid from Inter Milan, which you referenced earlier, had previously been turned down in 2000. And before joining Liverpool in the summer of 2003, Kuehl rejected offers from Milan, Chelsea, Manchester United, Arsenal... And Barcelona to sign for what was his boyhood club. How did Leeds feel? I imagine there's an element of kind of feeling a little bit abandoned as players sort of you know leapt off the sinking ship. Is that is that fair? Yeah, for sure. And I think when you when you re- realise that Kuehl eventually goes to Liverpool for I think five million pounds in the end, uh, you're talking about twenty million less than he was valued the season before, um, and it was very much a case of. It's very much a case of um, other clubs making hay while the sun shined for them, and um, I think Leeds fans just felt Leeds fans felt as though a lot of their best players had just been robbed, um, and I mean, <laughs> rightly so, I think. But um, it's it's a it's a tough one because you you obviously have the club financially mismanaged. So uh, I think what you tend to do in those situations as fans is is to sort of. Uh, direct your your uh, anger at, uh, elsewhere where you can um so yeah clubs like liverpool um who who were seen to sort of capitalize from it were were persona non grata for a while for leeds fans and um i think there was um certainly the, there's a lot of um i think even angry feeling towards Kuehl for being happy to move there but looking back on it now moving to his boyhood club um given the the financial situation it was the right thing for him to do obviously he wasn't going to stick around for for Leeds to slowly tank so i, I think looking back on it with with um the the bias of hindsight maybe um Leeds fans might think differently about it had he not eventually ended up at Galatasaray and i must say me i'd forgotten it was as little as 5 million that liverpool paid to sign him. Scored 11 times in all competitions in his first season at Anfield, was their top scorer in the UEFA Cup and second highest scorer in the Premier League, uh, joint with Emil Heskey on seven goals. How do you kind of assess his first year at Anfield? It seemed to me, looking back and speaking to Liverpool fans, that it was probably his 
best year there, which is a shame. Liverpool had got a got on a, a cheap player who was right at the top of his game, um, and he he ends up having a fairly decent. Um, uh, season that first season I think after after the 98-99 season where he plays every game in the in the premiership um, he, he very rarely plays over 30 games again and the next season he does he has 31 games in the Premier League in his um, final season at Leeds and then 36 games in his in, in the season following his first season at Liverpool but after that he doesn't play 30 um, league games in, for any club the rest of his career um and I think that you know that was it. That this was this was um, the, the the real high point of his career, really, in terms of this was the point at which beyond this the decline started happening, and that decline was injury based. If you look at it, he's already had um, seasons at Leeds where he's he's been he suffered from injury. So in two thousand two thousand and one, he only makes seventeen appearances in the league, uh, only manages twenty seven the season after, and so obviously finally gets back up to health in two thousand and two three just before he leaves, um, and and Liverpool really get the benefit of that return from injury, uh, but obviously the following season two thousand four five um, again blighted by injury and after that point I think it was that was it he just kept getting these um, he got hip injuries he got inguinal hernias as they're calling the groin as well and I think that just sort of um, ultimately held him back so yeah I think Liverpool got one good season out of him and um, I suppose yeah on in hindsight the the five million that they paid for him was was probably about right in terms of uh, in terms of actual usefulness, but um, they certainly they certainly got an incredible player for a season for for the value that they got. Yeah, absolutely right. It's kind of uh, like buying a, a car that looks beautiful on the outside, but it's done a hundred thousand miles and not got much left in the engine. As you rightly say, the 0405 campaign. Obviously, Liverpool fans will never forget it for the miracle of Istanbul, but I think Kiel will struggle to forget it for rather less happy reasons. Took him 14 games to score uh, his first goal of the season and having been entrusted to start the Champions League final against Milan in Istanbul by Rafa Benitez, he was taken off after just 23 minutes due to a groin tear. We've obviously sort of touched on the injuries up to this point, but does that kind of substitution and the, the subsequent accusations that he faked injury against Milan with Liverpool already taking a bit of a pasting kind of end up colouring his Liverpool career, you know, and really denying him the opportunity of a, a sort of fair trial, I suppose, when it comes to reflecting on his five years at Anfield. Yeah, I mean, like you said, it's a, it's a really tough start to that season. Um, and then, like like you said, also just being, being played in what is Liverpool's most important game in recent memory uh, in terms of that first um, Champions League final. I think that was just a huge amount of pressure to put someone under who wasn't performing particularly well either. And I, I suspect that the fans sort of narrated it in that way. And that's why the, these accusations of a faking of the injury there is were, were held up. Uh, interestingly enough, I think he plays, he starts in the 2006 FA Cup final and then gets taken off after, I think, 46 minutes um, for an injury as well there. So whether or not that um, subsequent um substitution actually changed the way that Liverpool fans thought about him I don't know but it, it I mean it seems to me incredibly harsh to claim that someone might fake an injury on a in a in a Champions League final game just because they weren't really feeling it um albeit they were struggling in the first half but um I, I think it must be it must be a tough thing to go through at a club and and try and come back from that um and and certainly I don't think that he ever really performs properly for for Liverpool again after this point you've nicked a point I was going to make there which is the kind of remarkable I don't want to call it a statistic but kind of fact that Kuehl started three major finals in his career the 2005 League Cup final against Chelsea the Champions League final of course against Milan in the same season and the FA Cup final the following year against West Ham and was withdrawn with injury during all of those and I wonder if that just kind of tarnishes maybe not his legacy but how people do view him looking back I mean for you as a Leeds fan I imagine you look back on him overall with with great fondness but for neutrals and Liverpool fans it probably changes things a little bit doesn't it that he was the opposite of a big game player if I'm being harsh. Yeah, I think certainly given that given that he's still got plenty of years left in him at this point, you would think um, it, it it seems 
unfortunate for him that that those, as you said, those sort of legacy moments that a lot of people have in their careers. Um, I mean, the, the, Harry Kiel won a Champions League. There's not many players you can even say that in 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 this period in English football, at least. Um, and yet, he, he isn't really ever held up as a, as a player who who won. Uh, that competition and um I, I think for him it's just it is just a shame that the the way the way things turned out because he started out so um um just so positively as a player and i mean you've already mentioned that that there's maybe an extent to which he he his his or under the bonnet his engine had done a lot he starts playing so young um and some players just do seem to have an age curve which which starts off earlier and and tails off quicker um so i don't know whether or not it comes down to that but again the the resounding idea that i get when i talk about or think about kewell and his legacy is that given that he played at, he just played at a very specific time in english football that had he played five years later it's not even that only that that he might have been um played in a position that more suited him um, and he might have made a name for himself because he was just such an all-round player which I think really would have benefited um, him in later football but also just the, the the leaps and bounds that football comes on in terms of um, just medical um, developments and nutritional developments he could maybe have eked out a longer career had that had that been the case obviously the the, the other player who um, he, the player who wins the Ballon d'Or in the, the season that Kewell um uh, gets his nomination is is Michael Owen, and I feel very similarly about Owen. He's a, sort of fits into that period of of history where it almost feels as though had he been had he been playing five years later, then maybe the there would have been uh, medical advances, which meant that he was managed better as a as a footballer. But I mean, we see this with Harry Kane now, so maybe not. Um, but I, I certainly think that it's. Those, those. Not only that, the injuries impacted his career, but as you've mentioned, it's the it's the timing of those injuries as well. At the real key moments, those legacy moments, uh, as it were, that that most players get and and people latch onto when they're thinking about their um, their histories. And he doesn't really have those. Just carrying on from that FA Cup final, he was withdrawn with abdominal pains just after half time and didn't play again for virtually a year. Uh, until deep in the 06-07 season and since in a series of interviews uh, with various publications said that called his time at Liverpool a nightmare and sort of cited the fact that of the 14 major operations he had in his career the majority while while he was at Anfield and even going as far as saying he came close to quitting playing altogether whilst at Liverpool why do you think it didn't work out for him at Anfield is there more to it than the injuries and his body not allowing with their tactical differences to playing for Rafa Benitez than say David O'Leary George Graham etc or what how would you put your finger on it I would put it down to the injury I've already mentioned that I think he was quite a tactically flexible player and I'm sure that he would have been the sort of player that Benitez could have worked with um, I think it just simply comes down I mean we see he has a has a successful first season um, at Liverpool and uh, and then once his once his body sort of drops off a cliff then um, he just doesn't ever seem to be able to break back in and I think by this point um, you just can't rely on getting a player like you back into into full fitness and full form. Um, so you bring in other players. A club isn't going to wait around to to for your body to to work out for you um, as a as a as a player. So I think it just it, it just comes down to that. It was just a, an unfortunate happenstance of history that. Um, he he just had that bad injury and then after that he just couldn't break in because it was just easier for them to replace him. Well, we'll end the kind of quite dour, downbeat chat there and we'll take a short break to d- before we return to discuss Kiel's move to Galatasaray and his legacy in the Premier League. Welcome back to You, Me and today I'm joined by Leeds United fan and football writer John McKenzie who's kindly giving up his time to talk to us about former Leeds, Liverpool, Galatasaray and several other clubs, winger Harry Kuehl. After his contract to Liverpool came to an end in 2008, Kuehl moved to Turkey to sign for Galatasaray and as we've alluded to already and discussed already, it was something that did not go down well with Leeds United supporters given the events of 2000 and the match which saw two Leeds fans lose their lives after being stabbed in Istanbul. And Kuehl responded to criticism from United supporters and some former teammates as well in an open letter which 
stated, I chose the number 19 shirt when I signed for Galatasaray as a sign of respect for Leeds because that was the number I got when I first became a regular member of the Leeds United starting eleven. I felt that it might be a way to demonstrate that I'd not forgotten where it all started and I was hoping that in a small way it would help the healing process of the tragedy that occurred on April 5th, 2000. To blame the Galatasaray club for the tragedy in Istanbul is simply wrong and discriminatory. We touched on it before, but how did this affect Kuehl's standing with Leeds fans? And uh, what's your kind of feeling on it? Is it something that you allow to tarnish the positive, the great memories, or is it something you can look past in the bigger picture? Yeah, well, it certainly tarnished the memory of, of Harry Kuehl for the majority of Leeds fans, I would say. Um, I mean, even... Even chatting to some of my Leeds fans, friends, they were they were about coming on uh, this show. There was a few of them that were like, "Well, make sure that it doesn't get out there amongst Leeds fans because it, they could could be negative repercussions for you," which I just find ridiculous. But uh, the very fact that the very fact that I think what's a, what's a, what's at work here is that there's two different things going on. On the one hand, Kuehl, I think, just takes it sort of pragmatically and says, "I need to play. Here's a club offering to buy me. Um, I've done everything I can to make this as as easy as possible for Leeds fans." And at the end of the day, you can't really blame Galatasaray for something that their fans did. Um, I think maybe the wording of of saying that uh, blaming the Galatasaray club for the tragedy in Istanbul is simply wrong and discriminatory is is maybe not the most the best advised words to to use of that, but. When you then face it from the from the side of the Leeds fans, I, I think they simply don't want anything to do with Galatasaray. So there's no way that they can um, necessarily um, view this sort of situation as anything other than a betrayal. And so you end up with this sort of confusing situation where no doubt Harry Kuehl felt that he didn't do anything wrong and did everything he could um, by way of the Leeds fans. But at the end of the day for the Leeds fans, they were like, this is Galatasaray, this is a club who, whose fans killed two of our fans and there can't be any sort of mediation in that situation. And so, as I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast episode, the results have been that, that Harry Kuehl is almost like a forgotten player at Leeds. There's not, he just doesn't get quite so much, I don't think quite so much... Um, uh, conversation in the in the in the discussions that Leeds fans have about those those times, um, he certainly just sort of passed over very quickly. Um, maybe hat tipped too, but then that's it. Um, and I it, I I just think it's it, it comes down to this. It comes down to the fact that he went on to play for Galatasaray, and and most Leeds fans just find that decision inconceivable. So. Yeah, it's it's a really fascinating um, um, story, really the the life of Harry Kuehl when viewed through, through the eyes of a Leeds fan, and that's that's why I was uh, so keen to come on and talk about him because I just find players like that just so that who who are sort of ambiguous to be so interesting, um, and it, it's certainly even even still, I mean, even when even when um, Kuehl was managing um, here in the last couple of seasons. Leeds fans have been hoping that his team lose, and it's it's a really fascinating attitude to to a player who was who was clearly a, an important part of, of of what Leeds was in the nineties. Well, speaking as a Watford fan, he was Watford under twenty three coach for a while, and I was working for the local paper at that time. And his team were absolutely awful. They were rank bad until, of all people, Lee Bowyer um, showed up for a few games to help out, just sort of very informally. A uh, big fisherman, and he, I think he was taking a break from fishing for a bit. Came over and helped Harry Kuehl, and that was the one period where they actually looked any good. So it was quite remarkable to me that he went on and got a couple of quite big jobs in the Football League after that. Anyway, we digress. After uh, signing for Galatasaray, makes his debut in the 2008 Turkish Cup final and scores 20 seconds after coming on, assists the winner in that match. And despite all his injuries up to this point, actually manages a very reasonable 34 goals and 18 assists in 91 games for Gala. Very well liked in Istanbul, nicknamed Harry the Magician and the Wizard of Oz by inventive Galatasaray fans. Uh, we won't go too deep on this. But how was his time in Turkey as a whole? And, and is there a kind of a nice kind of closure before he goes off to Australia and Qatar and really plays out the end of his career that shows there was, you know, despite the injuries and the disappointment and setbacks, there was still very clearly a good player in Harry Kuehl. He was just, 
you know, a bit weather-beaten, I suppose, by this point. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't pretend to be an expert in Turkish football by any means, but from what I've been able to to garner, this sort of this sort of time was, a, I think, a useful time for him. He was he still had enough in him to be a, a game changer, particularly in this league. Um, he he may not have had particularly um, long spells in in the, in the team itself. He, it was very much a case of just working around what his body would let him do. Uh, but I think he when he when he came on, he was. Um, he was, I think, not not simply w- were there still flashes of, of what he was um, uh, doing earlier in his career, but I think he's very much came across as as, as a as a professional player. Um, he was popular with the fans. I think they liked the fact that he was dedicated to his family, um, and I think that that sort of thing goes a long way amongst um, fan bases. So he was certainly someone that they latched on as an individual, and I think, yeah, in fits and starts, his his, his career certainly um, uh, matched up to the to the popularity that he had off the field so I, I think it was it was nice I think for him to have this period um, that you're still sort of playing football at the, at the highest level before finally admitting that you are going to to retire um, so I'm, I'm sure that he considered this important uh, an important period in his career. Looking back then on Harry Kuehl as a whole what was your favourite moment of his career watching him as a Leeds fan I suspect it's going to be in Leeds colours, right? Yeah, it's, it's fascinating, actually. I've, I've, I've thought and thought and thought about this, and um, you, you've asked me as well what my favourite goal of his career was. And um, it's funny because, like, in terms of his career, in, in many respects, as I've mentioned, he's he's quite a, a sort of... I don't want to say bland, because I think bland is maybe a bit too pejorative, but he was very much um, uh, a sort of blank personality. He didn't really... He'd, at a time when, when Leeds had sort of uh, a couple of players who were quite... Um, uh, flavoursome in terms of the way that they came across to the fans. He really isn't like that. He he really does. Ha- I can see why the Galatasaray fans would would call him professional because he just sort of gets on with it and doesn't really have a. I've, I've watched a few of his media performances and you know he's very sort of does what he needs to do. It feels like it feels like Kuehl perhaps maybe because he was brought in at such a young age, came across from um, uh, Australia very very early on that he was just maybe a little bit more PR savvy than some of the other players. And um, it, it just feels that he he doesn't really push the boat out in terms of anything um, in, uh, in personality wise. He's just very very guarded. And I think as a result of that, that I don't really have a, a favourite moment of his career per se. I think it was it, it was simply he was simply just so consistent uh, all the time. He just sort of it was just Harry Kuehl, and he he didn't ever change. Um, in terms of his favourite goal, my favourite goal of his career, there's there's just one that stands out. It's a, 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 it was in the ninety seven. Um yeah, ninety seven to ninety eight season against Derby, um, a four three thriller that Leeds end up winning. But he he just a ball ball comes in from a corner, someone heads it out, and he just clonks it in with his left foot on the volley, and it it's just sort of the the most typical Harry Kuehl goal that I can think of um, in that he just scored so many goals from that were sort of from distance, and they just didn't seem possible that they could be scored with the regularity that he did um, and so that one really stands out but yeah as I've mentioned it's hard to talk about my favourite moment of his career for a player who just Leeds fans have just have such an ambiguous relationship to um, and it's, it's it's almost that what that aspect of him that makes him so interesting to me. Is it fair to say then for all his kind of undoubted talent Kuehl didn't perhaps make the most of his ability be it due to injury and other factors and also I think there's a feeling maybe at Liverpool he kind of put Australia before his club side. Is that a, a fair accusation to to be levelled at him? I think had he, for example, had he gone to Inter Milan when they when they made their offer to for him, that might have been uh, a different trajectory. I don't know what would have happened there, but I, I think he was good enough to be able to go. Particularly, I think going to the continent where maybe teams were slightly more tactically advanced than they were in the in England at the time um he might really have thrived in 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 that sort of game um he he strikes me as being quite a european style player in many respects so that would have been fascinating to see um in terms of uh, australia certainly not at leeds i didn't ever feel as though we we begrudged him that uh, i think this maybe happened at liverpool a little bit more um and i suspect that that happened at liverpool more simply because like i said he sort of he sort of dropped out of the limelight at liverpool and it, 
I, I think when you're in that sort of situation, when you're so used to being um, so important to a group of fans and then suddenly you don't become important to them, you just probably latch onto your national fans because um, just because of the, the fact that Australia was, he was going to be one of the biggest um, fish in that pond. Um, I think he probably just latched onto it there. So that may be um, what comes it, it comes down to in that sense. Finally then, at this point I normally ask, where does the player sit in the kind of pantheon of club greats. I think from what you've said, and obviously the move to Galatasaray, that's probably not quite fair for Kiel. So what I'm going to ask you instead is where does Kiel sit in the kind of Australian soccer exports uh, of the last, you know, how many years? There've been quite a few that have come over to the Premier League and made a very good career. Mark Schwarzer, Mark Viduka, Brett Emerton, Lucas Neal. Where does Kiel sit? Is he perhaps their greatest? I think so. Um, Again, I've got a caveat this by saying that I think a lot of Leeds fans would try and argue that Mark Viduka was better than him but I in in many respects I don't think that's fair I think that um that Kewell just for the nature of the the way that he came over to to England as a youngster and really forced his way into that Leeds side um had had a longer period at Leeds than than Viduka and I think was I think was a better player a better baller I guess in in that sense uh, just in terms of innate talent um Viduka was was obviously great in his own right but I think with Kewell you because you have that sense that he didn't ever match up to the the ceiling that he had um I think I would probably pip him um above above uh, Mark Viduka. So, uh, yeah, I guess maybe questions about Tim Cahill, um, but I, I still think I would probably put Kewell above him. Excellent. Well, John, thank you ever so much for joining us today to discuss Harry Kewell on the latest episode of You, Me. And if you want to hear more of John, make sure you subscribe and download the Football Today podcast, which is going out twice a week, even during the coronavirus. And you can get more of John on Twitter at John, no H, underscore McKenzie, M-A-C-K. If you've enjoyed the show, you can subscribe via pretty much any podcast platform, including Acast, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And we'll be back next week to remember another icon of the 90s. Thanks for joining us. (laughs) 